cycles of life. Cycles in our spiritual life. As we look at the story of Jacob, as we have been studying over the past month, I want to recap that and just remind you of kind of where we are. We've got Jacob, who, of course, is the grandson of Abraham. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, in whom the covenant promise was given. The promise that through your descendants, I will bless the nations. I will, you will be as basically a light to all the nations. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And we know from Abraham, of course, comes Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, of whom the blessing and the promise is passed on. And then the promise is delivered and actually given in a vision to Rebekah, Isaac's wife, Jacob and Esau's mother. Jacob and Esau are the twins of Isaac and Rebekah. Twin boys. But from the beginning, the Bible tells us that literally Jacob was grabbing at the heel. His name means one who grabs at the heel, one who deceives, one who tricks was grabbing at the heel of his brother Esau, who normally would be the primary recipient of the inheritance of the blessing. But it had been prophesied, it had been committed by God to Rebekah, that actually the younger would be the stronger and the older would serve the younger. And the blessing would be given to Jacob, the descendants of Jacob. And we know, as we will look in a moment, the Twelve tribes of Israel eventually come from Jacob. Now, as we remember this story, we also remember that Jacob doesn't always do things God's way. And though that promise was given, he decides with his mother to go ahead and expedite the process. And through the process of deception, they deceive their father Isaac into giving them their blessing. Jacob has already manipulated his brother Esau into giving him his birthright. And the Bible tells us that from that point on, Esau Esau despised Jacob. So there's animosity between these twin brothers. And so it comes to the place that once his blessing, once his blessing has been tricked or has been manipulated from him, once he has deceived his own father Isaac, into blessing him while he thought he was Esau because of Isaac's blindness, because of his inability to hear and his faculties are not very good. He is close to the point of death. At that point, Esau really becomes angry and he basically covenants and commits to kill him as soon as his father passes away. So his mother comes to Jacob and says, look, your brother's going to kill you. You need to leave. You need to head to my brother's house, Laban, which is 500 miles away in Haran. And so he takes off because of his sin, because of his manipulation, because of the penalty that it will cost him if he stays there. He takes off. And on his way, he encounters God in a real and personal way that changes his life. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that he was the heel catcher. And in 29 verse 1, if we went back and looked at the Hebrew, it literally says, and Jacob kicked up his heels is literally the phrase that's used there. 
And you see the transition. You see the transformation from one who's grabbing at the heels to one who kicks up his heels. It is the picture of new life, of a new commitment, of a man who has been transformed, who has been made anew because of his encounter with Yahweh God Almighty when he receives the vision of the angels that are going back and forth upon the ladder to heaven. That time of Bethel, the house of God, that Ebenezer, so to speak, where he meets God. And so he continues his journey on to Haran, and, and God provides for him to meet his cousin Rachel, and then his father Laban, whom he begins to live with. He falls in love with Rachel, makes an agreement with Laban, his new father-in-law to be, that if I serve for seven years, then you will give me Rachel as my wife. He serves the seven years, but then on his wedding night, because he's probably had too much to drink, it's late at night and she's wearing a veil, in the morning he finds that indeed Laban has deceived him, and he wakes up with her older sister, Leah. Then his father-in-law comes to him and tells him, I tell you what, at the end of this week I'll allow you to marry Rachel if you will give me another seven years. So, 14 years he finds himself being molded into the image of the man that God desired for him to be. We see him going through the penalty of manipulation. We see him being worked. And we see him being transformed to some degree. And then he works an additional six years in order that he might receive the livestock and he might receive monetary value of which then he can take his family to the land of which the promise was given back to his homeland. That's the story of Jacob. And we all have a story. We all have a cycle of life of which we are going through. Now, as we look at this story, we want to glean some principles, but I think it's important for us to remember two things about the Bible. And I know sometimes people disagree with this, and but I just believe it to be true and believe it to be correct, and I think everyone else is wrong on this particular issue. Uh, it's this one. First of all, the Bible is in two aspects. Number one, it is descriptive. The Bible has certain passages, and, and matter of fact, many parts of the Bible are descriptive. It's describing what has occurred. It's not a mandate for you to go and do likewise. It's describing the event, and we see that in Jacob's life. When Jacob deceives his father, that's not used as an example for you. That's not used as a prescription that you should do it any more more than when Cain killed Abel, that that was a prescription to how to resolve your conflict with your brother. Okay, any more when David committed adultery that you should therefore go and do likewise. When Peter denied Christ three times. I think any reasonable, sensible person would agree that those are descriptions. That there's a story being told. It's not used as an example, much less a prescription of what we should do or how we should live our lives. So if part of the Bible is descriptive, the other aspect is Prescriptive. This, in fact, is what we should do. Of course, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O hear, Israel, the Lord God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The Ten Commandments are prescriptive scriptures given to us. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission, 
Go ye therefore and make disciples. Those are Scriptures of prescription. So I think it's imperative that we understand that as we look at this story, recognizing that not all that Jacob does is prescriptive. It's a description of what has occurred and how life has been lived. Now, with that understanding, I want to pick up where we left off last week. And we're not going to read a lot of Scripture. matter of fact, I want to encourage you to read chapter 30 on your own. If you enjoy Jerry Springer, you'll enjoy that story right there. Um, I mean, you talk about dysfunctional family. Uh, they put the capital D in dysfunction. Uh, it'll make you feel better about uh, about your relatives, your cousins and in-laws. You'll just think, ooh, I got it made. Uh, so just read that. That'll bless your heart sometime. Let's start with verse 31 in chapter 29. And when the Lord saw Leah, and Leah, of course, is the first wife, the one that Jacob had been deceived into marrying. And it says when she was not loved, that simply means that she was not the favored wife. She was not the one in whom he had primary allegiance. He had primary love for. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Rachel was her sister whom Jacob loved the most. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, He gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. And again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attracted to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi, which becomes the tribe of Levi, the priest. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. Notice the progression there. She keeps having sons thinking that she's going to win the affections and the love of her husband. And finally, she comes to the fourth son. She recognizes, I've just been blessed. I'm going to just be grateful for what I do have. You know what? This is not a prescription to just give up, okay? But what this is is a great picture of recognizing that sometimes we live in a marriage or in a situation that is less than desirable. And if we keep coming to the place where we think, what can I do to make you like me, make you love me? It's, it's kind of a just endless void that is never completely filled. But when she comes to the place and says, I'm going to just say thank you, God, for what you have given me. I'm going to praise you for where I am and for what I have. Because she realizes there's no manipulation. There's nothing she can do to make it happen. Hopefully she's been faithful. Hopefully she's done all that she can. But it never gives the opportunity to say, well, I'm done. This is not what I expected. This is not necessarily what I wanted. But she comes to a place where she recognizes, you know what? This is not the marriage that I dreamed of, but I have been given four beautiful boys. As a matter of fact, this last boy that's given to her is Judah. Now, just a little bit of trivia here. Uh, obviously, uh, these are some of the original tribes of Judah. We'll see later on. These are the 12 sons, which are the original 12 tribes. Now, actually, under Joseph, there are two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so there it practically are 13 tribes. Uh, but then as we go on, what's interesting is when the Assyrian army comes in around 70, 72 A.D. or B.C., somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, pretty much the Jews are wiped out. They're carted off. And the only ones that really get back are the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. 
and the, the Levites, Levites who don't have any land. And so what's interesting is this is where the blessing starts, but who does it come through? It comes through Judah. And where does the Messiah come from? The tribe of Judah. So you see the picture here, and then you see how the tribe uh, comes about, how those 12 sons are born, and uh, how that occurs. Again, descriptive, certainly not prescriptive. Now, what's interesting as we look at the life of Jacob, we see that he basically goes through cycles of life in which God conforms him and transforms him. And the ancients, the ancient writers used to use these three terms. And we're, we're going to be a little bit more uh, descriptive, a little bit more um, modern in just a moment here. But there were three terms that were used by the ancients. Uh, first term was called the purgative. It was called the state of being. The state of the being of the spiritual life. And the purgative was that time in the life of which the believer is purged. Purged of self-centeredness. Purged, uh, purged of how you think God has to work. Uh, purged of being uh, mistaking sometimes a feeling for God. Purged of habitual habits don't glorify God. That time of purging, the purgative is what they called it. And I think it's interesting. One of the things that St. John of the Cross describes is how sometimes once God brings us to that place, we become a believer, we follow Christ, and He has given us so-called the feelings and the warm fuzzy. There comes a time where God will desire in His efforts to mature us, to break us from depending upon those feelings and what's even worse, worshiping those feelings. you ever heard people sometimes say this? I don't know where God is. I just don't feel Him anymore. I think He's gone. You know, He's just there, not there anymore because I don't feel Him. Like somehow how we feel determines where God is. If we're not careful, we'll start to worship the feeling and not the God of the universe, not the God of Scripture. See, He's not determined by how you feel. And sometimes it's kind of like the analogy that when we were a child and when we have children now, we have a birthday party. I'm going to have a birthday party for my son in the next couple of months, and he's going to love it because he's going to have cake, and he's going to have a stupid little hat on his head, and he's going to get toys and these things that blow out and make a lot of noise and glitter and all these kind of things, and he's just excited. He's already talking about it, and it's three months away. But he's, he's only three and a half. Well, well, that's one thing. And I want him to have the warm fuzzies by his birthday. But if he's 53 and we're still having to do that, then there's something wrong. There's a serious immaturity going on. I hope that he evolves to a greater state of life of things of more substance. Okay? And, and God is right there as well. I hope that our relationship is not one that's dependent upon hats and glitter. So is God Almighty. And the purgative is a time of where God purges us. The next stage that the ancients would write about would be called the illuminative. The illuminative. It was a time where... The Scriptures are illuminated. It's a time where the spiritual life is illuminated, where we have that time of growing, of where we read Scripture and it resonates in our hearts and new insights are gleaned. And we are in that time of constant and consistent learning and growing. Not debate, not because of feelings, but because of the Word and the richness of the glory of God. The illuminative. And then the third stage they would talk about would be this. It would be called the unitive. After that time that we have been purged of our own methodology of how we connect with God and how things should be, once we have grown the grace of knowledge, we come to that place of 
peace where we are united with the Spirit of God in a time of peace. Now, let me tell you this. It is a cycle even in that. It's not like you come to that place and all your problems are over. It is a constant cycle of purging, of illuminating, of uniting in the Spirit of Christ. Now, as we look at the story of Jacob, I want us to look at some things practically that I hope that we can glean for our lives today. First of all, we see in Jacob's life the process and the cycle of breaking. We see Jacob being broken. We see in Genesis 28.10, as we read before, how Jacob loses his family. He loses his mother, his father, whom he will never see them again. He loses relationship with his brother, his homeland. He loses everything and finds himself alone on a road to a land that he's never been to meet people he's never seen. What a time of brokenness that must have been. Do you think maybe it was a broken time after Jacob had worked for seven hard years for a woman named Rachel, only to be deceived on the night of his wedding and found to be with one whom he had not been attracted to nor worked for? Do you think those were times of brokenness? Time where God breaks our sin, our self-centeredness, our own self-glorifying system. He breaks us from those feelings. And the way that we think it should be, the way that He ought to operate, this is what you need to do. Certainly Jacob went through that time and through those times. Sometimes we find ourselves in the time of protection. After Jacob had sinned and after he had lost everything, we certainly see the protection of God that would allow Jacob by himself in a land where there were no police, in a time where your clan and your family were your primary means of protection. He goes 500 miles into a land, into a foreign land, and God protects him through that process. We see later on in chapter 31 of Genesis where Laban is in hot pursuit of Jacob, but on his way, one night, God gives Laban a dream not to harm or to hurt Jacob. God's spirit of protection. That nothing can come through His hand lest He permit it to be so. Sometimes we wonder about that. And sometimes we wonder, where is God? Why doesn't He remove me from my circumstances? But the truth is, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Verse 9, that His grace is sufficient. His peace is made perfect in our weakness. So we know that though we may still experience bondage sometimes and He doesn't remove it, He gives us grace to be sustained. He might not heal us of our sickness, but He will grant grace that is sufficient. He might not bring us out of our debt, but He will make His grace Sufficient. We may not be completely delivered from our enemies, but His grace will be sufficient. Though our troubles may last, His grace is sufficient. Though our pain may tarry, His grace is sufficient. Though discouragement may abound, His grace is sufficient. The Bible tells us, that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them 
because they are spiritually discerned. The Bible tells us that we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God. The Bible tells us the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Bible tells us that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to confound those things which are mighty. The Bible tells us that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could hope or ask according to the power of His works. The Bible tells us it is not by might nor by power, but by His Spirit. And the Bible tells us there is such depth to the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge that His judgments are unsearchable and His ways are beyond our comprehension. That is the protection of God. Other times we find ourselves like Jacob in the time of discipline. You might say, aren't breaking and discipline the same things? But in fact, discipline's always not a negative Sometimes that's a time of illumination, a time of growing, a time in which God enters into our lives because of the brokenness and begins to reveal His heart, begins to reveal His Word, and begins to transform our heart the way that we think. Discipline, I believe, has to do with the heart. When the heart becomes disciplined and transformed, then our heart begins to have new thoughts. And when our thoughts are different, it breeds different actions. And when our actions are different, we'll have different habits. And when our habits have developed into proper habits, then what do we have? We have a destiny or we have an impact. An impact. How do we impact the world? It starts with the transformation of our hearts. You look at the life of Paul. Paul had a heart to exterminate Christianity, to destroy Christianity because he thought it was a cult. He thought it was wrong. But Jesus Christ transformed his heart. And now his thoughts were about of love and of peace of Jesus Christ. And it transformed not only his thoughts, but it transformed what? His actions. And his actions were transformed into habits. And his habits were transformed into an impact. He impacted the New Testament world like none other outside of Christ. Why? Because his heart had become disciplined. It had become transformed. And the discipline of the Spirit reigned in his life. Sometimes we are in a time of blessing. As in chapter 29, verse 14, we see the blessing upon Jacob. Later on in verse 30, verse 43, we see that after a time, Jacob, in verse... 43, in this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to his own large flocks, maidservants, men servants, camels, and donkeys. He was blessed. He was blessed abundantly. But you know what was interesting? He wasn't blessed before he had been broken, before he had been disciplined. You know why sometimes we don't experience more of the blessing of God? Because we don't know how to handle it. We don't have to do anything but to consume it upon our own flesh until we go through the school of the Savior, the school of the Almighty. And you know what? If you're like me, you're constantly needing to go to school and get refresher courses. It's not like we learn the lesson and we're done. We're constantly needing to be schooled, reformulated, and transformed. So is the blessing of God. You know, I, I think about the time of blessing. And, you know... I think sometimes we don't fully recognize and appreciate, or for me, uh, 
God's provision of this church. I remember a time after about a year and a half when we had about 175, 200 people. And we were about a year and a half or two years into the church and recognizing, you know what, we got to buy land and we're going to then have to put a building on that land. We had been investigating places where we could just go get a building or some place, but then we grew to the place where we couldn't provide for children on Sunday morning and there was not a place within this immediate area. So the only place we identified was in Grapevine. So here's what was going to have to happen. We were either going to have to find land soon in order for this all to happen. Granted, we hadn't raised a dime at this point, uh, but just to have the opportunity, we're going to have to have land. Then we're going to have to put a building on it because we've already used our one year in Denton School County, and then you only get three years in Louisville. And you only get those three years, um, you only get that third year if you already have purchased land. So we have... Uh, not very long, probably about a six-month window, and I, and I am recognizing that's not even going to be long enough to finish this process. So what are we going to do? And everything just keeps falling through. Agent, realtors, people, nothing's working out. And I remember praying this prayer. I remember thinking, God, you're going to have to do something because I don't know anything else to do. I give up. You're going to have to do it because Lord knows I can't. It's not going to work. And I remember God opening up the door for this property that we got for a tremendous value at about a third of what it's now valued. God provided this for us. And it wasn't by might or power, by anybody's wisdom. God did it. And He came to that place where there was no other alternative. We could have gone to Grapevine, and that would have been fine. But how many of you would be here today if we were in Grapevine? Probably maybe my wife would be with me. I, I mean, none of you would be here. And that would have been okay. That would have been God's provision. But God provided for here in His time of blessing. You may be in that cycle today of blessing. How are you allowing God to use the blessing time of your life? And then finally, the time of guidance and direction. The time of revelation in our life where we encounter God. The time where God comes and speaks to us like He did Jacob. And then where we see Him doing it multiple times. The second time, the first time we see Him doing it at Bethel, the second time we see it do it in 31, uh, chapter 31, verse 10 through 13, where God tells him, it's now time to go. And I'm going to bless you as he, re, re, uh, he regresses, or excuse me, as he remembers how God had given him the vision, how God had given him the opportunity to expand his economic situation, how he had seen his children come about. God has blessed him tremendously. And now He's giving him revelation. It's time to go. It's time to pick up your family and pick up your things and go back to the land of which the promise exists. Laban has tried to manipulate and tried to deceive and tried to steal from you all this time, but he can't overcome a man who has been blessed by God with the promise. And that is exactly what has occurred here. And so today for us, We've been given the Bible as our divine revelation that God has given to us. It's the primary mechanism of which God reveals Himself and reveals direction along with godly counsel and prayer. But you know what the truth of it is? Until our heart has become disciplined in our prayer life, a lot of times we'll find ourselves simply praying amiss, as James talks about, praying for our flesh until our hearts can become disciplined. So my question to you today is, what stage, what cycle of life are you in? Are you in the cycle of brokenness? Maybe you're here today in a spirit of brokenness, in a time of brokenness in your life. 
Maybe you're here in a time where God's protecting you. Maybe you're in that time of discipline where God's illuminating you and taking you through a molding process. Maybe you're in that time of blessing where you are receiving the blessing of God. Maybe in that time of direction. Regardless of what time you're in, God wants to work in you. He wants to use that time to conform you into the image of Christ and to make an impact in His kingdom. I was reading an article this week, and some of you probably heard about this. It's the extinct tree from Christ's time rises. Scientists have grown an extinct tree from what may be the oldest seed ever to produce new life. The seeds were from a 2,000-year-old date palm at Masada. Now, a date palm was uh, the palm tree that existed during the time of Christ. Uh, it had great economic value. matter of fact, it was believed that Jericho primarily, uh, its economy was most strengthened by the date palm. It had medicinal purposes. It was a delicious fruit, provided shade, shelter, beauty, the whole deal. So it was, matter of fact, it even becomes somewhat of a national symbol. They see it on some of the coinage uh, there during that time of the Jews' And so the Judean date is now extinct in Israel, but scientists hope that they can examine this plant and use it for medicinal purposes. Now, uh, most of you know Masada was one of the last stands in the first Jewish revolt of where some of the Jews went, and it was a place where Herod the king had, had built as a fortress in case he ever, ever there was a coup or a rebellion. So it was on the top uh, of a mesa, basically, is what it was. It was on the top of almost this mountain. There was a mesa up there, and they had the rainwater, had a building up there and a fortress, so it was thought to be almost impenetrable. Uh, and so the Jews, who had, some who had led the revolt, they find themselves over there at this time, and uh, they're hiding out there in Masada. They're discovered, and the Roman army comes and camps out, but they recognize they're going to be there a long time. So through a series of events, they're... they're what they did was just unbelievable, the way they built rock and dirt and brought it in to try to get there. And finally the Jews realized, look, they're going to get in. And so they, according to Josephus, uh, the, the historian, uh, he determines, they determined to commit mass suicide. And so that's, in fact, what they do, except for two women and three children that hide out. Well, this place is a, a place that you can go and visit today, Masada. They found in the 70s, they found a cachet in a jar... Uh, and then they deemed to be about 2,000 years old, and it had a cachet of seeds in it. Because of the dry climate, these seeds still looked like they had the potential to be active, and so they brought them in, they treated them a little bit, and then in 2005, basically for 30 years, they just sat there and were kind of uh, almost a, a relic, so to speak, in, some, in some, some ways, but definitely something that people looked at and were able to see in the museum. But they finally decided, you know what, we're going to plant three of these seeds. Well, in 2005, they did that, and one of them actually sprouted. And they're estimating by 2009 to 2010, it will produce fruit. And they're going to see what is the difference. They still believe that it possibly has medical propensities that uh, long since have been extinct and that the new dates are a completely different breed. Now, that, these trees have been extinct somewhere between 150 A.D. and 500 A.D. Most of them think it's somewhere around 150 A.D. They became extinct because they were burned and uh, just for various reasons. They, they don't even know all the reasons. But these seeds have disappeared. Now they've taken that seed and they've planted one of them and it's grown. Now, what is the point of that? You know what it is? Regardless of the time of your life, you may be today in a situation where you feel like life has been removed from me. My marriage, 
my children, my job, my economics, my peace, my happiness, it is dead. It is extinct and it is never to return. This is it. Only gloom and only despair awaits me. Can I tell you this? God's grace will be sufficient. Don't start living in the worst case scenario. And I'm not promising you that you're going to hit the lottery and everything's going to get better. Matter of fact, the way that He'll do it won't be the way that you think. He will choose to sustain you and change you rather than simply probably to remove you. But His grace will be sufficient. And behold, I make all things new. This morning I invite you to come and meet a resurrection Savior. A God who specializes in things that seem to be extinct and bringing life. If you're in that broken time, God wants to use that in your life. If you're in that time of discipline, God wants to use that in your life. If you're in the time of blessing, God wants to use it. Do you believe and will you trust? And will you call upon His mercy and His grace and receive Him today?